being passionate about something that's not super common is going to carve you a, a place of specific expertise. Hey everyone, and welcome to Sports Artie Snippets. I'm Liz Waluka, a registered dietitian and board certified specialist in sports dietetics. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you a sports dietitian guest that will share advice, insight, and rewards of the profession. Snippets of their own career path to becoming a sports RD. Hey everyone, welcome back to Sports RD Snippets. I'm super excited to have Clint Wattenberg today on the podcast. Clint is a veteran sports dietitian that has an incredible journey to becoming a sports RD. Clint Wattenberg is the Director of Performance Nutrition at the UFC Performance Institute. Since starting at the UFCPI in 2017 at the program's creation, Clint has helped guide the nutrition program to include soon-to-be four full-time sports dietitians in a vibrant internship program focused on building the next generation of combat and weight class sports nutrition. Contributing to the growth of the field has been a focus of Clint's career seen through the development of the Combat and Weight Class Sports Summit, the publication of his ebook Performance Nutrition for Wrestlers, and his commitment to the professional mentorship of emerging sports dietitians. Clint is also responsible for managing the expansion and coordination of the UFCPI nutrition team to include the UFCPI Shanghai and support service expansion that includes comprehensive culinary integration and nutrition team support of all UFC events. Prior to joining the UFC, Clint served as a coordinator of sports nutrition at his alma mater, Cornell University. In addition to supporting the Big Reds 37 teams, Clint worked as part of the Cornell Healthy Eating Program as an eating disorder nutrition specialist and helped found Body Positive Cornell, an eating disorder prevention and campus-wide wellness initiative. Clint was a student athlete wrestler at Cornell where he was an All-American and was on the U.S. Freestyle Wrestling National Team as a postgrad. Other relevant experiences include serving as an assistant coach at Cornell, director of Finger Lakes Wrestling Club, president of New York Wrestling Association for Youth, and competing in mixed martial arts. Let's jump in and let's meet Clint. Hi, Clint. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, what's up? Thanks for having me, Liz. I'm excited to have you. How's life in Vegas? It is sunny and warm enough and busy as can be with our uh, events and athletes and everything else here with the UFC. Jeez, I was just telling Clint before this that I think Vegas and California are the only states that didn't get this horrific snowstorm that is in Texas and everywhere else right now. So we're, we're jealous it's sunny over there for sure. Yeah, and coming from upstate New York for 19 years, this is uh, still such a blessing to, to have the sun out 300 plus days of the year. Yes. Yeah, um, I was at Syracuse. When were you at Cornell? What year did you leave Cornell? I left in 2017. I, I arrived in 1998. Wow. I, yeah, no, I always kind of think about if I knew about sports nutrition while I was at Syracuse, I probably would have reached out and been like, can I come see Cornell? But yeah, upstate New York, a lot of snow there for sure. Indeed. It's a beautiful place. Um, and the winters are super wintry if that's your thing but i i've always been an in kind of an indoor winter sports athlete so you just kind of put your head down get from class to class get to the the wrestling room and and then go suffer there so 
Uh, I didn't really enjoy the winter as much as some others might have, but uh, very, very happy here in Las Vegas where yeah. it's sunny all the time. Sounds amazing. But yeah, so I like to start these episodes off with how we know each other. We were just talking. I feel like there was like this exact moment where I met you, but I think it was you presented with Elizabeth Scott at mm -hmm. TPSDA in Indy on the Body Positive, is it the project or? The Body Positive Cornell, yep. Okay, that's probably where we probably had the most interaction or mm -hmm. where I met you, but yep, upstate North, upstate New York connection too. Yo, yo. All right, so let's jump in. Can you take us through your career path up until this point where you started and where you are today? That is such a good, long question. Let's answer. hear it. Yeah, so um, I think similar to a lot of sports dietitians, um, you know, currently practicing or that will be practicing in the future, my, my journey around sports nutrition really started through my own kind of learning how to, how to fuel myself for my own sporting career. Um, wrestling being a weight class sport requires a lot of manipulation of nutrients in order to make weight and to compete effectively and efficiently. And I made virtually every mistake under the, under the sun, just because, um, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of resources and, uh, you know, as a young athlete, uh, whether as you know, youth, high school, collegiate and, and beyond, there's always going to be, uh, you know, different variables that, that you're trying to, you know, utilize or, or optimize and um, different, you know, changes in, in, I think, um, kind of the ownership of the process. So as an example, going from high school to college, obviously on your own, learning things um, and, and, and having to manage um, your, your own schedule, um, time management, and a lot of the things that student athletes struggle with at, at college, in addition to learning nutrition as a, you know, academic subject. And, um, you know, many nutritional sciences programs, and particularly at Cornell, it was a, a path um, that was geared towards, you know, pre-med students. And so it was very, um, you know, cellular <clears throat> mechanistic and, and not very applied. And so um, trying to apply nutrition science to my, um, you know, somewhat up and down collegiate wrestling career was, uh, was certainly a challenge. And a big part of it was actually around weight making that, uh, you know, set me back quite a bit uh, through my collegiate career. I was um, in high school, my senior year, I wrestled at 152 pounds. I didn't cut a lot of weight. I gained about 50 pounds in college, got, you know, hit my second uh, puberty, so to speak, got a lot stronger, got a lot thicker and, um, and grew out of a weight class at 165, which I thought would be my lifetime weight class because of just the fact that I wrestled 152 in, in high school. Um, struggled to make weight um, through my, you know, my sophomore and junior years, um, suffered a lot of injuries and uh, ended up going up two weight classes in um, my, my junior year um, from 165 to 184. And uh, I was part of the, you know, a big theme within the Cornell wrestling program. Um, and it was right at the same time when we were going from mediocre to elite as a program. Um, where a lot of our athletes, myself and, and a lot of my teammates that came uh, after me, ended up going up weight classes and were able to be far better nourished um, and be able to get better throughout the, the wrestling season, which is a, a total grind. Um, and so I was able to achieve the majority of my competitive success uh, up at 184 in college. I uh, was a two-time All-American. Um, and then post-college, I continued in attempts to make the Olympic team through the two, 2008 Olympic trials. Um, did not make the Olympic team. I was on the U.S. national team for a few years, which is 
um, top three on the Olympic ladder and you get to represent the United States around the world, just not at the world or the Olympic championships. As I was, uh, you know, let's back, back it up just a second. When I was a recruited student athlete, I um, went to an informational session um, through the uh, nutrition program where there's an externship program through our sister school, which is Ithaca College across the hill. And they offered an exercise physiology minor. And so I had this idea of, okay, I'll pair nutrition and exercise physiology, and it'll be this like total package for performance. This is amazing. Um, I don't know if it exists, but I'm super excited about it. And so I kind of pursued that um, through my, um, my undergraduate years. And then my first year outside, once I graduated uh, Cornell, I went to Ithaca College, Ithaca College and got my master's degree in exercise physiology. To me, it's the same. It's, it's really just human physiology. It's, it's, you know, nutrition is the input and exercise phys is the output. It's two sides of the same performance coin. So it, 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 it is the perfect marriage in my opinion. And I counsel a lot of hiring sports dietitians to pursue, um, you know, formal education uh, or, you know, just pick up some, uh, some um, insights around exercise physiology wherever you can, because it's so critical to applying nutritional science uh, in a practical level for uh, for, for athletes. Um, so I got my, my master's degree at Ithaca College in uh, 2004. And then uh, I was on, uh, kind of got deviated from my, from my vision and I got into college coaching, which is still a passion of my coach. I, I consider myself a lifelong coach and my athletes now just happen to be six and nine years old and live in my house. But um, I got into coaching for a few years and got seriously burnt out from coaching because of it, not just the coaching, the coaching is amazing, but it's the recruiting, the fundraising, the alumni development. It's, it's the nonstop um, kind of business of it that is required to make uh, a collegiate wrestling program in particular, something that is sustainable and, and, and is successful. Um, so as I was finishing up my competitive career, I'd stepped down from, um, from formerly coaching and I was running our, our kids and, um, uh, kind of regional training center wrestling club, which is, uh, you know, kind of from youth all the way up to the Olympic level. I was trying to find uh, a fit for myself professionally as I retired from competitive wrestling and kind of refound my vision for the performance side of uh, nutrition and exercise physiology. So I uh, had some uh, DPD requirements that I needed to um, fulfilled because I dropped some classes later in my Cornell career because it was just tough to manage with with all the other things that I was juggling. So I had 20 credits of undergraduate um, coursework that I had to do. And then I went and did my dietetic internship at Cornell University. So in 2010, I got certified as a registered, you know, credentialed as a dietitian. And I then set off to become the you know best sports dietitian that, that I could, even though I didn't know what that was. Um, and um, at Cornell, I had a lot of really great connections between coaches and athletes and administrators. And my, my wife was uh, a student athlete at Cornell as well. She was a track and field. Uh, she was a thrower, school record holder in uh, a number of the, the um, disciplines. So we, we, our kids are bred for strength. But we, um, I, I started to really just volunteer with different programs on campus and, um, and, and, and worked to get a, a foot in the door and, and to build relationships um, and learned shortly thereafter that there was uh, something called the Student Athlete Opportunity Fund, for which then I started to get paid um, kind of per presentation, uh, you know, very small rate, uh, very small fee, but at least was starting to create uh, not pro bono um, 
you know, program where I was, I was doing work within the athletic department um, to, uh, to create resources for them and also to create relationships and an opportunity for me to build a program. Um, at the same time, I uh, worked to identify how to work with athletes, how to work with individuals that, that I can help. And um, the most kind of foreign area, but also the most opportunity for me was actually in the eating disorder space. Um, my wife uh, was at the time a, a, uh, an athletic trainer and she sat on our Cornell Healthy Eating Program multidisciplinary eating disorder treatment team as the athletic department liaison. And so she asked around and, and um, got it approved for me to come and, and shadow and to do some, um, you know, some exposure work within the CHEP program. And I, I had met, I didn't have a real strong relationship with her yet, but Carolyn Hodges Chafee, who ran the um, upstate New York eating disorder treatment program. Um, and they had an outpatient, um, intensive outpatient program in Ithaca. And so I started um, volunteering down there initially, and then I started to do um, kind of, you know, uh, consultant type work, uh, you know, individual casework uh, with them. And that uh, provided an opportunity to, to build experience in an area that I had zero exposure to, zero, zero insight, and a lot of discomfort um, in that space because it was just so foreign and, and I'd never really worked with female athletes, let alone female with eating disorder and, and certainly eating disorders cut across uh, all types of people, but the majority are going to be with our, our female, you know, overactive individuals, especially in that setting. And so got some amazing exposure there and use that connection to then um, when Cornell hired a, a halftime um, in-house person for their Cornell Health Eating Program, the, the eating disorder specialist, I was hired half-time within the eating disorder treatment and worked very closely with a number of, um, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, medical professionals, both, uh, you know, and physicians and, um, and PAs. Uh, athletic trainer was obviously on, on the team and just a really, really great introduction to multidisciplinary teamwork. Um, and, and it's so critical in, in that setting to, to have people that, you know, essentially have your back and, and are able to, to collaborate with. So I, I believe that was 2012 when I started working with the Cornell Health Eating Program. And um, over the, you know, each year, I started to gain more traction within the athletic department. I started with 20% funding, which was like one day a week working with athletics, grew it to 40%, 60%. And Ironically and sadly, the year that I came here to the UFC was my first year with full-time funding um, oh, wow. in athletics with, uh, with, with Cornell Athletics. Um, I was still doing some work and I, almost, I practically traded time. So I traded a, a half a day a week to the Cornell Health Eating Program where I would sit in rounds and work with or, sorry, student athletes or just individuals that um, had a specific niche that I was able to, to influence. Um, and then one of the eating disorder treatment dietitians would come and help me in athletics half a day. So it created a really great continuity of, uh, of work. I also had a lot of uh, connections around campus with uh, the academic program. So I had a lot of um, you know, students who would intern with me and, and uh, help to kind of expand our program and really um, grew the program to, you know, to be as comprehensive as I could with one full-time person. Um, we have 37 sport teams at Cornell, so needless to say, the, um, the level of support is not to the degree that you would see at a lot of 
more well-established programs. And, um, but I also was able to build it from scratch. And so I was able to, to build it in my mind's eye in terms of uh, what, what I thought would be the most impactful. And, and I uh, very much have kind of a systematic mind in terms of thinking about um, how, how to build things that are going to be you know, scalable and, and sustainable. So that was a real blessing for, for me to be able to do that. In 2017, like I said, I, I achieved full-time uh, status within our athletic de department. Um, and then the UFC came calling, uh, opened a state-of-the-art performance institute with world-class staff um, and, and needless to say, world-class athlete population. So uh, it was actually a really, really hard decision uh, to, um, to, to make the transition out here. There's a number of things at Cornell that, uh, that I struggled to, to say goodbye to. One was just the community uh, within Cornell wrestling, within the you know, Cornell leading program, and just the, the community members around campus. And one thing that I neglected to share is uh, was able to initiate a an eating disorder treatment program. So not not just treatment, but prevention, and, and uh, made some connections um, and and some real campus wide um, programs and resources to to support students, including student athletes, around uh, you know true wellness initiatives um, and 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 serve that serve as a destination for for eating disorder recovery as well as uh, to you know provide some uh, resistance to the eating disorder stimulus that um, that students and student athletes especially at a high achieving university like Cornell um, are exposed to so that was really hard to say goodbye to but um, found myself here at UFC where just the opportunity to work in such a setting and to have such a platform is second to none so uh, it's flown by but uh, taking on new challenges every day here and, and just really loving the challenge of it. Wow, that is amazing. You have done so much. And what is it kind of like looking back and thinking of yourself as a student athlete wrestler at Cornell and then to think when you became a you know a sports dietitian there to be able to give that support to the wrestlers? You know, what what is that like? Yeah. So one of the things that is so challenging working in, in talking with a lot of dietitians in the space, you know, breaking through to wrestlers or just weight class or combat sport athletes, it, it feels so daunting to break through to this community because there's so much historical institutional knowledge. It's passed down from athletes to athlete, coach to coach or coach to athlete. And it, it becomes really, really hard to break down. And a huge asset that I have is the, is the fact that hey, I've done it. I've, I've been through the struggle. I've made the mistakes, um, but also I look like a fighter. I have a bald head. I have a thick neck and cauliflower ear. And so I walk into a room where people are like, oh, this dude's a fighter. And I almost have to like educate them about my education just so that they understand that it's, it's a balanced approach. And um, my right-hand man here at, uh, at the UFC, Charles Stoll, he is amazing amazing as a dietitian, but he is a Muay Thai fighter. And so he has very similar kind of background to, to bring to, uh, to these conversations and just instant buy-in. Now we, we, we have other members of our team that, um, that don't have the combat sport background and, and we're building kind of resources to be able to create those connections and experiences and, and, and whatnot, both here at the OC, but also with, you know, other professionals that are outside of our, our walls. But it, that's, that's really the driving force you know, the initial driving force for my career was to provide resources to the community and initially it was wrestling and now it's, you know, all of combat sport to, to do things in a way that, that is healthier in the long term, more consistent for performance and, and really supports um, that long term athlete development, not taking shortcuts to results. 
very quickly it turned into kind of a, an agenda of mine to bring the performance support team, which is really the sports dietitians and the sport in general. So that's gonna be coaches, athletes, you know, community members together because there's a huge disconnect. And, and I remember when I was a student athlete at Cornell, we had a dietitian come in and the first thing she said is you should walk around at the weight class you're wrestling. And the first thing we said, the first thing we did is like, okay, we needed rest anyway. So we just kind of like ignored her. Um, just lacking the, the context to the sport is, is, is the first way, the easiest way to get athletes and coaches and people in the, in the combat sport community just to you know, disregard what you're saying. And so bring, you know, bridging that gap has been a, a real career, career uh, driving factor for me. And, and for years, I, I went to the National Wrestling Coaches Association convention and, and the coaches convention to educate, educate coaches, not only around nutrition, but how to use dietitians. And I brought my colleague, Victoria Rosenfeld, uh, to co-present some of the um, kind of the state of the science um, updates that we had written for the NCAA and some, some various things. But really, it's like, okay, here are dietitians, here are coaches. How, how do we work together and utilize ourselves um, to, to, the, to the best that we can? Um, so certainly, there's a, kind of a two-pronged approach to, to my, um, my driving factor there. Yeah, I can only imagine, you know, not being a wrestler, being a sports dietitian, trying to educate wrestlers on nutrition. That's really hard. What do you feel like with your um, experience at Cornell working with eating disorders and getting that experience and now, you know, working with wrestlers in the weight cutting aspect? Is there something that is just so prominent in wrestling or just um, just stands out on your expertise in helping the population you work with right now? So in terms of the crossover between my experience with eating disorders and, and weight class sport athletes, the, I think the, the through kind of theme is, is, is physiology. And that was, I think the reason that I had such traction with our eating disorder patients that I, I worked with um, is, is because I was able to ground things in the non-subjective, the non-blaming, terms of physiology and when you can describe some of the mechanisms of dysfunction then you you can help to take the blame away from some of those behaviors and you can explain them in a objective way that can you you can visualize a little bit better um, i think the coaching my coaching background is also really critical in making some of those connections and i didn't have a lot i didn't have any formal training in eating disorder treatment i shadowed um, i went to a couple of conferences and, and i i just really coach like I coached people through the hardest moments of their lives and and that's I think really what um, motivated me and what was so engaging around eating disorder treatment is just the fact that you're there and somebody's suffering and they're the, the hardest part moment of their life and you are helping to problem solve with them and and to to serve as a, a mirror as to kind of reflect back to them some of their suffering and, and ways in problem solving ways to get out of it with our combat sport athletes, I, I see this as just a puzzle. You know, athletes have to make weight and they have to compete. Those are the two things that we know. And how do you solve this physiological puzzle in a way that does both of them as efficiently as possible? Weight making is not a performance practice, right? 
there's there's nothing that's inherently beneficial for performance about dehydrating and and creating a, a low calorie you know energy deficit. So how do you do it in in a way that supports optimal performance at the end of the day? And so it's an incredibly complex puzzle, so many moving pieces. It's a complex sport to begin with. Athletes are training ungodly amounts of of hours because there's so many skills that need to be acquired, as well as the physiological energy system development that's required. So I see it as an incredibly complex puzzle that we're working to put the pieces in place to make weight efficiently and then go, you know, perform. And in the performance piece, again, it's around the long-term athlete development process. It's not about doing it once, it's about doing it repeatedly and sustainably, right? So the athletes can get better every single time leading up to their, they win a UFC title. That's what we all wanna do. One thing that, that I, I do take a little bit of a, not offense to, but I, I disagree very strongly that um, weight class sport athletes have been included as like an eating disorder mm-hmm. hotbed. And, and I, I disagree um, with, with that. And in pretty much every eating disorder chapter I read in a textbook, lists it's like your gravity sports your aesthetic sports and then your weight class sports i think that you see maybe a slightly higher share of eating disorder cases in a weight class sport setting than um, maybe just a general team sport setting just because the mechanism of control for anxiety or loss of you know your loss of control. So the coping mechanism may drift towards food and nutrition and, and, you know, exercise a little bit more because it's something that already has to be managed. But by and large, I think that weight class sport athletes have, you know, a bit of resilience to eating disorders. Um, I, I, I can only point to two of two specific wrestling cases where there was, you know, a full blown eating disorder and there is comorbidities around alcoholism and, and drug abuse in, in, in both of them as well. But um, I think that uh, th- there's actually some resilience and, and I'll give an example. We, we had, um, actually we, we didn't have a lightweight rowing women's team, but my colleague Victoria at Princeton did. Um, but we had lightweight rowing uh, for men and open weight rowing for men. And what I found was that the, the more clinical, the, the actual eating disorder type cases were more prevalent in the open weight where there's there's no weight limit um, versus the lightweight rowing. Lightweight rowing is very similar to wrestling where they have a weight class, they have to make it in order to then get in the boat. It's a little different because the, the boat average, um, it has to be like a boat average. So if you're a better rower, you get to be a little, you know, pound or two heavier. Um, but by and large, you have a weight, you have to make it and then you get to row. Individuals, especially college student athletes, will do boneheaded things to make weight. And they'll do boneheaded things after they make weight, very often as a biological response to starvation. Binge eating is a biological response to starvation. It's driven by the weight-making effort. It's driven by the, the physiology of starvation. It's not driven by the psychological distortion that oftentimes we see with body image or anxiety management that you would see in more of a clinical case. Open weight rowing, they don't have to make weight, but there's this like magical strength to weight ratio that they're trying to optimize. And there's no finish line. There's always better because it's perfection. And so even in our men's open weight rowing team, we had a number of, you know, eating disorder cases and, and some, you know, high performers, high performance is not insulate you from 
um, you know, eating disorder risk. It can actually put you at a higher risk. And we had cases where our, you know, a number of high performers on our open weight team were experiencing eating disorder type um, issues, largely because of this chronic need for uh, perfection around the strength to weight ratio. Um, you know, coaches in, in programs can certainly put in safeguards that don't compare athletes, don't post weights, don't, um, you know, don't put on a pedestal some of these things, but at the end of the day, it is a strength to weight ratio that dictates, you know, in addition to technique, how fast your, your boat goes. And so it, it's, it's a more of a, a challenging dynamic than people doing dumb stuff to, to make weight. I'm glad that you shared that. I think that's a very helpful perspective to not just put weight class sports in a category or more of understanding the reason behind it. Uh, just changing gears, can you tell everyone what UFC Performance Institute is, what your role is day to day, just anything you want to tell us? Because yeah, I'm happy to. You guys are just like this outside world and we just want to come in and learn all about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so UFC Performance Institute is the bomb. Uh, it is, we're located in Las Vegas, Nevada. It is a, I don't even know square footage, but we're a, we're, we're part of the UFC headquarters and we have a training space available for UFC athletes. We have 600 athletes on our roster, give or take, and we have, uh, performance services to support all of the needs of our athletes. We have sports nutrition, um, sports medicine, physical therapy, focus, um, strength and conditioning, and we have a sports science, uh, sports science vertical. We've added on over the last uh, year and a half, two years, a sports psych, performance psychology, um, kind of a auxiliary service, and we're, we're kind of building in different areas as well. Um, we work for all athletes, so we'll, we'll work with athletes that are competing this week or that will be competing, you know, in, in the near future, which is very different than a lot of other um, professional sports settings where you work for a team, as an example, and you essentially have a, a vested interest in the success of your team. We work with everybody, um, which is challenging in some ways, but it's also liberating because we get to focus on objective science and we really are able to focus on what is going to support our athletes uh, you know, very objectively and, and bring the science into it without getting too uh, emotionally committed. Um, we have three full-time sports dietitians here. It's myself, Charles Stoll, and Nicole Alai. Um, fantastic team, um, of which we're adding a fourth. Uh, we posted our, our fourth position here uh, about a week ago, and we're, we're expanding and we're bringing culinary in-house as well. So there's like some real like growth in the nutrition team. So this, this is becoming quite... Um, you know, quite a program. Um, initially, when I was hired, we, we didn't, ha I didn't have any travel expectations or responsibilities. We didn't event support. Yeah. And we, um, in 2018, their toe in the, in the water. And then 2019, we went to 23 events to support comprehensive nutrition, um, supplementation, weight, weight management, weight making, and, um, you know, pre-fight feeding support, travel with chef. Um, we had a, um, meal prep partner that was fantastic in helping get this off the ground. Uh, we've recently moved on um, and are, are moving to do it in-house. Um, and so we also are having an expectation of going to all 42 to 44 events moving forward each year. So this is like essentially every weekend of the year, very different than a traditional sporting season. So it's just nonstop. It's a, it's a grind. 
um, especially right now because we're hosting all of our, most of our events here in Vegas. Um, and so it's just this chronic, constant um, kind of Groundhog's Day in terms of Fight Week support. But um, Nicole has recently um, taken on event support as well. This is a, a big task because you're working with athletes around the weight cutting process and, and all of the logistics that goes into that. Um, so now that we have three of us dietitians that can support, that's really helped expand our bandwidth. Um, and like I said, uh, we're, we're, we're growing the program and, and, and going to be traveling with our own internal chefs, which is, which is pretty, pretty cool. There's, uh, well, hoping to provide, uh, some, some cool opportunities to sports dietitians in the near future too, that, uh, that I'll be happy to share when that comes online. Um, in addition to Vegas, we have a second performance Institute in Shanghai, China that opened in June of, uh, 2018. And uh, they have a slightly different model. So we, we're all about performance optimization. We work with already elite athletes that are in the UFC to optimize performance, make it more sustainable and, and, and to be able to do it more repeatedly, right? Um, that's, that's kind of our, our charge here is work, you know, optimize performance with our athletes. Um, Shanghai, they have a performance development model because they have an academy team. They, the, the, the reason we have a performance institute there is to you know, grow, develop homegrown Chinese born UFC talent so that we can grow the media market, the consumer market. And so they have a, they have an academy team. So they, they actually get to root, root for their, their guys. And, um, and once they make to the UFC, then they're, you know, part of, part of the overall, um, you know, UFC fighter community, but um, that's pretty cool. And there's, um, you know, strong potential where we'll be expanding uh, to other sites globally, which is really uh, kind of an amazing thing to be able to be part of. Wow. The most, um, I didn't realize until I watched the CPSDA takeover when you and Charles went to, was it Abu Dhabi? Is that how you say it? Yeah, Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Abu Dhabi for, was it fight, you're on Fight Island or? Yeah. <laughs> no more terms, but I didn't realize that you fuel everyone. And so you don't, like you were saying, you don't have a team. Like, it's not like, like you're fueling the two fighters that are, you know. And so I think that's super unique and different compared to like other dietitians, but. Yeah, it's it, it's very unique, and and there's a few different areas where it's it's so interesting. And one case, I I, I remember this uh, maybe a month or so ago, where I was on fight week support. So I was the I was the dietitian that was helping athletes in the hotel, and was in one room, you know, providing you know resources, education, counseling around some of the weight cutting, weight making tactics, um, and and we we try not to be the ones that are there like phys physically torturing the athletes because sometimes it, it is borderline inhumane, but we're, we're there to provide health and safety recommendations, optimize what they're doing, be, be, a, be a sounding board and a resource to kind of coach, you know, the coaches through the process. But we, you know, I was in one room in a hotel providing this counseling, literally get a text as I'm leaving their room, you know, go down two flights across the hall into their opponent's room to help counsel them. Our, our job is to make the product on fight night as successful as possible. We gotta get them to the event. We gotta get them to the octagon in a way that they're gonna you know, be able to put on the best show possible and you know, serve themselves, serve, serve their family, their team uh, and the UFC at large uh, well by, by going in and, and performing to their best. Um, the, the, other, the other side of that is in the kind of more long, longer term lead up is we'll be working with two athletes that I know we're going to be fighting in a few weeks and, and I have two athletes that I'm doing that with right now that 
Um, they're, they're fighting in, you know, maybe like five weeks now, but they were supposed to fight a couple weeks ago. One of them got hurt. Um, I couldn't tell the other one. So I'm still coaching them around, you know, how to, how to manage things. A couple of days later, they tell me that their opponent got hurt, gets pushed back, but still kind of working both sides of that and just making sure, you know, that, that we're, we're, you know, meeting the athletes trust, obviously, I don't care one way or the other in terms of, you know, one, once they weigh in, once they're fueled up, then, you know, maybe, maybe I have a personal favorite just because of, you know, relationships are like that, but it has no bearing to me if, if I let, you know, I'm close with somebody or I don't care for them. The, the goal is to get them to, uh, to the octagon as prepared as possible. And we've, um, we've worked really hard to maintain that trust and, uh, and, and to, and, and to, you know, really grow that process. And I'll give you just one more example of how this is, this is really cool. We have an athlete who, um, you know, very publicly lives in Vegas um, and, and trains with us and um, is a quite a high profile athlete and, and he, he's fighting in just a couple of weeks. His opponent is uh, not American, um, not English speaking, um, and has just come to Vegas for the last four weeks of his camp in preparation not not caring the fact that the other athlete you know has kind of staked a claim to the performance to both training we try to keep them not in the same room at the same time um, just to kind of manage the emotions but re, you know the, there's there's a huge degree of trust uh to to be able to support these athletes and to be a resource uh which is which is something that's pretty special that's amazing um can you talk about when you're um in abu dhabi and just with covid I mean, just watching that story, if anyone wants more information, go watch that CPSDA takeover. It was incredible. But from the supplements, from the resources, from the sleep schedules, from, you know, making weight or medical issues on, you know, I just, I mean, it's just amazing. Any just insight on that or just about that experience and just. Yeah. So we've been to Abu Dhabi three times since COVID hit. So we were there in July, yeah. September, and January. And ironically, I was, I went to the event there last September. So I've been there three out of the four times, it, it, especially over COVID, of course, you know, it simplifies some things because, um, you know, athletes aren't going out and, you know, there's, there's, there's just a, a limited amount of things that can, you know, that are needing to be controlled, but those that are become really complex. So um, when, you know, I'll give just a little bit of backstory when the, the pandemic hit, um, we moved our, our fights to Vegas because we have a production studio right next door called UFC Apex. Um, but our international athletes that couldn't get into the U.S. needed a place to fight. So we needed someplace international that we could get our athletes to, to, to have the ability to, to compete. And so Abu Dhabi um, panned out to, to be the, the place that we were doing that. And so the first event was July in Abu Dhabi. And my weather app told me it was 120, feels like 140. And, um, and so of course I had to go running outside and exercise off outside. Um, I went for a two mile run and lost three kilos. It was that hot. Um, but that's just kind of the heat side, but we had an incredible amount of, of moving pieces and Charles, myself and, and Alexa Eisenberg at the time was our third dietitian. We sat down and, and identified and, and we're oftentimes the most intimately connected with athletes on the road. We, we also travel with our sports medicine team um, and they do amazing work on the treatment side, but we're, we're the ones that are connecting with the athletes ahead of time, planning, preparation. We do a lot of the engaging and onboarding as soon as athletes arrive at events. And so we identified the fact that 
there's so many questions that athletes are going to have around sleep, uh, sleep time zone issues. Um, add this to the craziness. The fights were managed to be had on American time. So the fights were 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. in Abu Dhabi. And so these just these poor athletes are having to fight in the dead of night. Um, you know, think about how hard that is to, to be activated. And we have all these sleep presentations around optimization of training and, and when to have your like, forget about it. We're fighting at 3 a.m. And so we're we but we have athletes coming from all over the globe. So how do you transition somebody from Australia versus somebody from the States versus somebody from, um, you know, from Europe? So it's so many moving pieces. Um, how, how do people make weight when they have five days of travel and quarantine? like so some athletes are even more. Um, and so it just so many moving pieces. So we put together a performance portfolio that our, the nutrition team led. Um, Charles still took a, a huge role in, in putting this together, but it was sleep schedule shift. It was um, activation and deactivation tactics, breath work, um, physical work you can do on the plane or while you're in quarantine, a list of supplies to bring for, for hotel uh, exercise routines and some, some routines there. Um, just a, as comprehensive a, a program as, as we could think to do. So this was like educational. We tried, we, we sent it out to athletes and, and managers ahead of time, and then we provided it um, where we could. We put together, you know, comprehensive supplement packets, both for, you know, immune function is obviously critical. Gut health uh, is, is vital for, you know, the weight making, but also the immune uh, function. Um, com com combating inflammation, water retention is a big deal when you're traveling so much and your sleep cycles messed up. Um, and so a lot of education and resources there. We actually, um, our, our partner with uh, Thorn uh, is, is amazing. Um, Thorn is an, an amazing you know, supplement company and a partner of ours. And they shipped, uh, they shipped I, I don't know, like a crate or not, not a crate, but a, a pallet of product over, overseas. And, uh, and they sent it, it got sent to Dubai, which is part of the UAE, but UAE, is a bunch of different like city states. And so we're in Abu Dhabi, all this stuff got stuck in Dubai for like a week. So it essentially went up the chain of command and we had like the royalty in Abu Dhabi calling the royalty of Dubai to release our supplements. And it was just this whole craziness. Charles was in the middle of it. And it, um, it's, it, it's insane, just the, the, the moving pieces. So we're, we're working around the supplements and we travel with chefs. So we, we get access to the kitchen. We have to source all the food. Um, fortunately, everything in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, it's a, it's a Muslim country. So all the meats are halal, which is really critical because we have a huge Muslim athlete population, um, especially with uh, the, uh, the Dagestani and Chechen athletes um, are, are all Muslim. And so we have a huge need for that. So thankfully there, that's already taken care of. When we travel elsewhere, that's a huge uh, cultural consideration for us. Um, and then obviously working with athletes to feed them and to get information that we need to support them when everybody's on a totally different sleep cycle. So the way that it would work because athletes are, are fighting between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m., we kind of broke it into the main card, which is kind of like 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. and then everything that's before. And it's kind of like three, it's like three different groups. It's like the early fights, which is like fighting at the very end of the night. We got the main card, which is fighting at the very start of the morning. And we got the middle, the tweeners, where they could kind of go either way. And so we had two different sleep cycles that we were recommending. So we have to be accessible, you know, pretty much around the clock. And uh, when there's two of us, we can kind of split split up and, and support athletes, but it, it just becomes a, a huge, huge lift. 
And meanwhile, we're dealing with 140 degree you know, temperatures outside. So it's, um, you know, th that's a consideration around food spoilage, even when we're traveling a mile down the road with food that, that needs to be temperature controlled and everything else. So needless to say, we, we have some great excitement on, on those trips and, and we're a global sport. So right now we're operating in uh, Abu Dhabi and Las Vegas. Uh, we're planning to go to Singapore in April. Um, but once we open back up, like I said, we're, we're, we're going to be supporting every event around the globe, which is going to be 42 to 44. And we hit, you know, every region around the world, which is, which is really exciting. Um, and and it's, it's just an opportunity to, to work with great, great athletes with such, such a diversity of backgrounds, of experience, of uh, um, education, of nutrition, you know, needs and demands and, and everything else. And one last thing before I, I, I let you ask the next, next question is, I'm working my way through the Francis Ngannou podcast interview with uh, Joe Rogan. Um, and just, this is a guy who lives in Vegas and he was, it took him 14 months to immigrate from his home in Cameroon to, to Paris, France. Um, and just harrowing stories. It's, it's already, a, it's, it's going to be a movie in five years because it, it speaks for itself. But this is the, the type of athletes that, that we work with. There's, when, we, when we're down in Brazil, athletes will take us to their home and they live in, they grew up in the favelas in the hillside of, of Rio de Janeiro. It's like amazing, amazing athletes to, to be able to work with. And, and truly, this is a sport that rises, you know, raises people out of poverty and, and gives them opportunity, which is a pretty cool place to be. That is amazing. It's it's so cool just from watching that um, the takeover. This the amount of support and care. You know, there's no surprise why they, you would be hiring another full time dietitian. Well, Clint's been waiting for this question. What is the best piece of advice you've received in your career up until this point? Yeah, I I've heard you ask that to, uh, to other practitioners, and and I always kind of was was racking my brain about this, I didn't have anything pop out in my mind. And the main kind of unexpected turn in my career uh, as, as a sports dietitian was when I um, was, was speaking with Carolyn Hodges Chafee, who, who runs the Upstate New York Eating Disorder Treatment Program and, and was a consultant at Cornell with the, the CHEP program. And, and I had so little experience, exposure, or even like insights around eating disorders, uh, let alone eating disorder, eating disorder counseling. And she, she shared that she thought that if I was able to dive into this work um, and, and to address my weakness, it could be an incredible strength to my, my professional um, you know, toolkit. And you know, within a year, um, you know, I, I was working you know, predominantly within eating disorders and, and had cultivated an amazing passion for it. And it remains core to, you know, my, my overall nutrition philosophy of, of, of supporting the human first and, and especially around the, the mental health and, and the crossroads of, of nutrition and mental health um, is, is so critical to the work that I do. And um, without that advice and, and really being pushed down that avenue of, you know, investing in an area that I had a, a real blind spot, um, I was able to turn that into a passion um, within my professional um, toolkit, but also something that I, I think I've been able to help to translate to uh, help not only the, the patients, the athletes, the clients that I've been able to work with, um, but, you know, through the, the Body Positive Cornell program, 
um, you know, be able to help translate it to, um, you know, support, you know, other clinicians and professionals in, in the space, which um, has, has really been a, an unexpected uh, benefit of, of what I've been able to do within my career. Wow, that is so amazing. It's, it's just so interesting because from a few other guests as well, it, it really sounds like having experience working with eating disorders and sport is such a foundation to have. And it's super helpful for anyone like just becoming a sports dietitian of where, where to spend your time or where it could be valuable later down the road. But um, all right, ready for the rapid fire round? Yeah. What is the biggest mistake wrestlers make regarding nutrition? The most common mistake that a lot of wrestlers and combat sport athletes make, and and I'll, I'll take responsibility in that most of the bad habits right now are coming from MMA, UFC athletes doing them, and then they're trickling down to the other combat sports, is this in this need to eat clean um, throughout the competitive season or the fight camp period. Um, what that oftentimes means is, you know, cutting out all carbs, especially processed carbs, sometimes very low fat, um, and particularly no sodium. Um, there's an awareness of the water retentive properties of sodium, um, and athletes will very commonly drink two gallons of water, have no salt within their diet, and feel great for a week or two. Um, but eventually, they essentially wash out all their electrolytes, can't retain water, um, disrupt, disrupt their aldosterone regulation, which has a cascade effect uh, within their cortisol production and a lot of the stress hormones. And then their body essentially plateaus and, and holds on to things and doesn't respond when it comes time to, first of all, recover from training, but then when it comes time to, to make weight, they have no fluid um, shift capacity. So this uh, quote unquote clean eating phenomenon that a lot of athletes uh, engage in um, really kind of limits their ability to recover and then to shift weight, shift water um, over the final you know, day to, to, to make the weight. Also, um, you know, any clean eating uh, type, um, you know, feeding strategy um, really harkens back to, to my exposure to, you know, the, um, to, uh, to the orthorexia that, that I would see uh, within kind of the normalization of, of restrictive eating patterns. And so I, I really try to work to, to normalize some of the foods and build in some of the, um, you know, more periodized nutrition strategies uh, to support performance when it's needed, but also to, to add in the recovery piece, both physically and psychologically. Wow, that's very helpful. Um, green or red apple? Green. Yes. Okay. I, well, I honestly thought, I thought growing up, everyone liked green apples because I did. But one time I did a, a survey on Fueling Husky's Instagram page and more people voted for red. So I don't know. I'm a green apple person too, but. You got to be in a mood for a green one though. You think? I think so. I don't really trust a red one though. Sometimes they're bad. No? Fine. Macintosh is good. Or apple picking in New York. <laughs> yeah. Gal, gal is our go-to in our house. Um, best advice for students that want to get, uh, that want to work with combat sports? Uh, 
I think that the, the best pathway is to experience it, right? To, to live as a combat sport athlete, if you've had it. Uh, if not, immerse yourself in it, learn about it, learn the language. I mean, language in a sporting setting is, the, is a great way to kind of start to understand the sport culture. Um, and if you abuse the language, as I kind of talked about, um, you know, if, if a dietitian comes and asks a wrestler about their upcoming game, it's like, forget about it. So you got, you got to learn about the language and the terminology and, and some of those details. And that's, that's the first step in, in making the connection. Um, but really, I think with, with any sport, you got, you got to get as much exposure as you can, whether you go and, and you know, watch a, a practice or um, a sparring session or whatever it may be, or you know, join a, a local gym and see what it's about and, and go through the grind a little bit. Those are all really great ways to, um, to, to start to understand them. Uh, which is then uh, the first step in, in starting to develop an exp expertise around it. Yeah, so definitely immerse yourself in the field before you get into it. It's good advice. All right, last question. Are you ready? Yeah. If you could tell your younger Artie self one thing, what would you say? I would reassure myself that some of the more tangential experiences that I was engaging in, so coaching as an example. Um, I actually was the, the president of a youth wrestling organization for five years. So kind of leadership through a not-for-profit. Not um, it's, you know, it's a lot of these experiences uh, that you accumulate, be, you know, have, have faith that, that those are gonna become valuable in the future. Um, as I explained the trajectory of my career, wasn't wasn't super linear, but I feel that all of those experiences helped me to carve out the path that I had and um, and really make my unique experience as uh, you know as a collegiate and in, in, you know international wrestler turned dietitian to be a, a niche and you know uh, an area of uh, professional ownership that I was able to carve out for myself. Um, and sometimes some of these detours don't end up being the long-term career path um, that you might have hoped for, but to kind of put those in your back pocket um, and, and use them as an experience to, to grow from. And, the, and to, to that end, I, th I think that being passionate about something that's not super common, um, th at least that's not yet super common, is, is going to carve you uh, a place of specific expertise. And um, we can look back at, you know, 2008, 2010, when CPSDA was formed. Um, and, and I was fortunate to attend the second annual conference when uh, my good friend, Christian Gavrani told me about the conference. I was like, well, that sounds amazing. Um, but those pioneers um, carving out a space that didn't quite exist yet, um, or myself in, in terms of weight class and combat sports through my passion in wrestling. And, and to really use a, a passion that may not be super common to, to grow from and, and to, build a, to, to build a niche. I had a friend at, uh, at Cornell who was uh, into um, cosplay and, uh, and, and she was working to support a lot of her cosplay friends and colleagues around nutrition because that's a big thing that gets neglected. So like it could be anything, but if you have a passion for something, even if it's not super common or, or well-known, 
own it and, and it'll turn into an expertise where, where uh, people that you care about will, will turn to you for, uh, for, for your expertise. That's amazing. Yeah. I think that's been the theme of, you know, a lot of the podcast episodes are every experience matters and every experience has value. And um, that's just such a good point. And yeah, like follow your passion and, you know, the work that you're doing. I mean, you're totally a trailblazer in that space. And it's just super cool to kind of watch the profession grow and combat sports. And it's just super unique. So thank you so much for your time today, Clint. It was awesome having you on. Yeah, it's fun joining you, Liz. And thanks for doing this podcast. It's fun to learn about so many of my colleagues out in the field. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day and enjoy the sunshine while we all freeze to death here. Yeah, indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Sports Arty Snippets. I hope you found our conversation helpful today. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Share the podcast or tell another sports RD to be or sports dietitian about it. If you can rate and review the podcast, it really helps the show and is much appreciated. Remember to follow along on Instagram at Sports RD Snippets to see what Sports RD guest is featured each week. I'm super excited to bring on my upcoming guests, so stay tuned. I'm Liz Waluka, and thanks so much for listening.